Well, as they're leaving, I'm going to start by reading the word of the Lord as found in Mark 3, 7 through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whatever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much um, for who you are. Um, You are creator and sustainer of the universe, God, um, and you chose to send us your word, God, um, though you didn't have to. Um, You sent us your word as written um, in the text that transcends space and time, God, the same word that Paul and David um, read and that saints have read throughout the centuries, we read here today, God. Um, And Lord, we cannot understand it without the illumination of your spirit. Um, So I pray that you will fill this room, fill these hearts um, with your spirit so that we might understand um, who you are, who we are, God. Um, You as the one who loves us and designed us and us as the beloved. Um, I pray that you'll be with Pastor Chuck as he shares with us um, that you would just speak through him, God, and that you would soften our hearts to receive um, the good news um, of who you are and who you've made us to be, God. Be with us now. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Remy. 
<clears throat> There's a lot of big words in there. I get somebody else to read the scriptures. Idumea. I'm glad you pronounced that one. <clears throat> I had to look that one up myself. Good morning, Orangewood. It's a privilege to be here. I'm a member of this Bride of Christ just as you are. And it's just by God's enabling grace, his amazing grace, that I happen to be the one that gets called and privileged to be able to preach your word. And I have to tell you, no matter how many times I do this, um, there is an ever-deepening sense of awareness that lest the Lord speak in me and through me, the result of my words is empty. But God chooses to use preaching as his means to transform hearts and, uh, and I'm so thankful for that and privileged to be standing here. So let me ask you a question. I got a couple little questions and a big question. Is there someone that you would consider yourself to be a student of or a pupil under? Maybe a teacher, a blogger, a counselor, a doctor, an artist, a poet, maybe even a preacher. If so, then you have a good understanding of what it means to be a disciple of someone, according to the original Greek word that's used in this passage in Mark. Orangewood has a statement that defines where we see our organization, church and school, all of us, where we see us heading. We call it our vision statement, get it? Where we see us going, it's our vision statement. And it goes as follows. Orangewood members are disciples advancing Christ's kingdom in their own hearts, in their families, in their communities, and throughout the world. So we actually exist to see this happen for the glory of God, to see disciples of Jesus advancing Christ's kingdom. So here's my bigger question. Are you a disciple of Jesus's? And if so, are you the kind of disciple that you wish to be? Are you a disciple of Jesus? And as you, in your heart of hearts, sit there and think about that question, are you the disciple, the kind of disciple that you wish to be? In today's passage, we'll see that there are different kinds of disciples of Jesus. And according to Jesus himself, it really matters what kind of disciple you are. Ultimately, it determines whether you are simply doing life or whether you are experiencing the abundant life. So what kind of disciple are you? And then my last probing question is this. If you're not yet a disciple of Jesus and you want to be, or if you are a disciple and you're not the disciple you want to be, how can you grow? And that's going to be our main application at the end of all this. How can you grow? So in Mark 3, we see, we begin to see how God intends to spread his kingdom across the globe. We're going to see God's means and his method to bring life transformation to this broken world, his means and his method. I've broken the text into four sections, or God's word, it, it naturally breaks into these four sections. Um, and it's not on the screen behind you, but if you have your bulletin, this might be helpful. You could draw a line between the first paragraph and the second, 
a line between the second and the third, and then go down to the bottom and draw a line between the bottom paragraph and the one just above it. Those are the four sections of this passage, and each one of my main groupings here comes from that. So that just, it might be helpful. But here are the four sections. In the first section, crowds, multitudes follow Jesus. That's the first section. The second section is Jesus selects a few. And the third section, opposition, foe and family miss Christ. And then fourth, a new family grows. So those are the four sections. And I'm going to speak on each one And we're going to see God's means and method to bring life transformation to this world. So let's look at this first one. Multitudes, crowds follow Jesus. People are literally coming, and all those cities that are mentioned in the beginning, they're literally coming from north, south, east, and west. Idumea is 100 miles away. And yet people there have heard about what Jesus was doing, and they have traveled a hundred miles. Imagine that. To do what? Are they going to a Beatles concert? Are they going, you know, what? They're going to see Jesus. This guy they've heard about, not through technology, not through social media, through word of mouth, spreading and spreading and spreading. They've heard about him and they've come. Multitudes, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are coming. And so, it kind of begs the question, why? Why are they coming? Two main reasons. Jesus, he's traveled from town to town in this relatively small area, preaching and teaching. And they are moved, those that hear him, they're moved by the power of his teaching. So bottom line, the crowds that hear Jesus, they like him as a preacher. They like his preaching and what he preaches about, right? Um, But they're moved by his powerful preaching because he preaches like no other. He preaches with unparalleled authority. He is better than the other preachers they're hearing, i.e. Pharisees and scribes who are not very happy with him and who, in fact, you know, in union with the Herodians are planning to figure out how to destroy him. So he's preaching powerfully with great authority. They like it, but also... With this powerful preaching is coming supernatural stuff. Supernatural things are happening wherever he goes. He is literally putting displays of power on unlike anyone, unlike anything anyone has ever seen. He is healing real people of real diseases and chronic conditions. He is reversing birth defects. He is healing lepers and restoring their bodies completely. He's restoring full mobility to the completely paralyzed. These are the things he's been doing. And on top of that, he is actually having conversations out loud with demonic spirits who have inhabited host bodies. And he's talking to them. That's crazy. He's having repeated and regular power encounters with Satan's minions. So imagine if you had the opportunity to see all that and to be under his teaching. So they're walking 100 100 miles to go see this. And the crowds are coming like crazy. So one thing I just want to note, and you're going, why is there a door to Chuck's right? Well, when Jesus walked on the earth, he himself, listen, 
was a portal. He himself seemed to be a portal. And he was a portal between two worlds. One that was invisible from the other unless God chose to make it otherwise. So just think about this. When he came to be baptized, what happened? The sky opens up. And God the Father speaks. And something like a dove comes through that opening and rests on Jesus. When he was in the wilderness for 40 days, what happened? Satan, the devil, comes to him and tempts him, meets him where he is, comes to him. And also angels come to him and administer to his needs. When he's preaching in the synagogues, demons through their host, humans, are approaching him. So wherever Jesus went, it was as if there was this opening between the physical realm and the spiritual realm, as if he himself was a door. And the demons, not only did they come to him, but what did they do? Through their human hosts, they fell at his feet. And they called him by messianic titles. The demons knew who he was. They knew him before they fell at his feet. Think about that for a minute. That's amazing. And when Jesus commanded them to do things like come out or be silent, what did they do? They obeyed. Who is this man that commands the spiritual world and the physical world and everything obeys him? Who is this man? There's a passage in the Gospel of John. And I want to read it. John 10, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's amazing. So Jesus, he really is the portal. He really is the door. He really is. So, Jesus commands these spirits to be silent. You may go, what's up with that? Why wouldn't he want spiritual beings claiming that he was the Messiah? Isn't that something he wants everyone to recognize and know? But he, he orders them to be silent. And it's interesting. There are different reasons as to why, you know, commentators say, experts say he commanded them to be silent. But there is a couple reasons that are really just obvious in the text. The multitudes that are coming to Jesus are so great that these crowds are becoming literally dangerous for people. These people are coming and they want to get near Jesus and they want to touch Jesus in order to be healed so badly that they're not asking permission. They're not respecting Christ's personal space. 
They are crowding around him and pressing in. So much so that in this text, at one point, Jesus tells the disciples to get a boat ready so that if the crowds start pressing in, he can get in the boat and get a little bit offshore and preach from there. So what's interesting is the crowds themselves and the amount of people and their behavior is such that it is hindering his mission. What is his primary mission? Interestingly enough, his primary first priority mission is not necessarily to heal or cast out demons. It is to preach. It's to preach the gospel. Because when he preaches, people respond to his message by faith. And by faith, they are miraculously healed of diseases. They are restored. And by the power of God and the word of God, demons are cast out. So when the crowds become a hindrance to his first priority, which is preaching and teaching, he commands them to be silent. So here's an interesting thought. We have a Messiah who's freshly come, so to speak. He wants to transform the world. He wants to establish his kingdom on the world. And thousands of people are coming to him. Wouldn't you say that's good? I would. That's great. The more, the better, right? Because we're going to overthrow this secular ungodly power structure on the earth. Let's get everybody. Let's create an army and let's train them and we'll divide them up and we'll prepare them for battle. The more, the better. The more, the better. We'd expect them to gather as many as possible, organize them into good leaders and move out. Is that what he does? It's not. He chooses a very unusual strategy for global conquest. You know what it is? You ready for it? God in skin, who is all-powerful and, you know, has legions of angels at his disposal if he so chooses, what does he do? He chooses a few. His means for kingdom advancement is not supernatural displays of power, outward power, it's people. He chooses a few men. That's his means. He selects 12, with whom he then concentrates his discipling efforts. He calls these 12s up onto, up onto a mountain, and actually he calls all of his disciples that are with him at the time up on the mountain, the ones that are hanging tight with him, and then he chooses 12. And you know what he did the entire night before this? According to another gospel writer, he prayed. He prayed all night. When was the last time you prayed all night for anything? When? If ever. That must be a pretty serious ask. There must be some pretty serious reason to pray all night. So Jesus gets with his father all night in prayer. Why? Seeking his father's wisdom to select the right 12. That's the way I imagine it anyway, because after this all-night prayer session, he invites his disciples up on a mountain, selects just 12 of them. And that's kind of reminiscent, isn't it? Because there's another guy in the Bible that was called up on top of a mountain, and he was met with God there, and he was given a law that would help rule God's people, and God divided the people up according to 12 patriarchs, 12 sons of a guy named Jacob, who was a descendant of Abraham. And those 12 tribes became the way the people of God were organized. 
And we have Jesus walking the planet and the religious leaders that are under the old covenant system, the high priest, the king, they have all rejected Jesus as Messiah. The old guard symbolically has rejected the Christ. So what is Jesus doing? What is God doing? He's reconstituting a new people of God, not through 12 patriarchs, but through 12 men chosen to become his apostles. And through these guys, the new people of God under a new covenant of grace are being established. That's awesome. He appointed 12, Mark 3.14 says, so that they might be with him. Get that. He chooses 12. For what purpose? So that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In John 15, 16, which is a passage that John describes, it's at the Last Supper, which we're going to celebrate together this morning. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells his followers, his disciples in that upper room this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So 12 is an important number, 12 patriarchs, 12 tribes of Israel, now 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. So God is establishing his new covenant through a new mediator and reconstituting a new people. And the gospel is God's call out to anyone with ears to hear and eyes to see and a will to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their champion savior. And these 12 are a pretty unlikely bunch. They're all sinners. They're all messy. They're mostly uneducated. None of them are part of the religious elite. And he even picks guys that you wouldn't expect to get along. A bunch of them are relatives. You know, you know how well relatives get along. And he also picks one guy who's a zealot who wants to overthrow the Roman government. And he chooses another guy who is a tax collector who has sided with the Roman government to get wealthy through that establishment. So these are the guys he picks, and this is after a night of prayer. And then he picks Judas. Oh my gosh, Jesus, you know men's hearts. Why did you pick a thief? He picked him willfully, purposefully, because Jesus knew that he'd come to die at the hands of the religious elite of the Jewish people through the Roman government and he knew who Judas, Judas was, and he picked him intentionally because Judas would be the vehicle through Satan's influence that would take Jesus to the cross, which is why he ultimately came. And the reason he's pouring into 12 is because he knows that day is coming, and he knows one day he will be gone, and this group, this group will carry the torch for the advancement of the kingdom. So Jesus then does something else, and this is super counterintuitive for a king building a kingdom. Listen to this. This is really important. Jesus reproportions himself to focus most of his time. He has two more years of public ministry, give or take. He is now going to proportion the vast majority of all of his time. God in skin. He's got one more year to go to transform the world. He proportions his time to focus primarily on 
the 12. He doesn't form another group of 12 and another group of 12 and another group of 12 and spend this week with this 12 and this week with this 12 and this week with this 12. He focuses in on this one single group. Jesus had one main small group and only for a couple years, two and a half or so. And he poured himself into them. It's counterintuitive. It's bizarre to think that he gives a rapidly diminishing priority to anyone outside of these 12 during his last two years of ministry. A rapidly diminishing priority to anyone outside the 12 and a very close circle around these 12. This is God. This is God's way of transforming the globe. A rapidly diminishing priority to the rest of the world? Yes, it's exactly how he did it. And it's interesting because as he continued to teach during that last year of ministry, he taught things like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, I say to you, listen, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's John 6. I had this little epiphany because John 6, 66 pops up here after Jesus has this little discourse, and I, the number kind of catches your attention, doesn't it? If you've been in Christianity very long, 666, the number of the beast. Yeah. I don't know what that is exactly. And I'm supposed to know, I'm a pastor. There's some mystery around that. But if you look at John 6, 66, here's what it says. Don't look, just listen. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There's 666. Disciples no longer walked with him because this teaching was too hard. They couldn't get their minds around it. They're probably thinking cannibalism. They're probably thinking he is out of his mind. It's too much. He's crazy. And they stopped following him. Disciples and the more he teaches, the more he talks about denying self, suffering for the sake of the gospel, being hated by the world, letting go of things of the world, himself dying at the hands of the religious elites, and the more he uses parables and metaphorical language to explain God's truths, more and more and more disciples fall away. I thought this guy was going to lead a successful church planting movement. In the first century world, what's happening? The multitudes, the thousands are being whittled down, becoming fewer and fewer. While Jesus spends more and more and more time with just this very small group of few. And here's the kicker. That's exactly what he wanted to happen. He focused all his time and energies on his leadership, preparing them for his hard exit. Because it was coming. So this shows us what? Jesus means for global transformation are people. 
His primary method for kingdom growth, get this, choose a few and go deep. Or another little expression that I thought of, one or two with a few. That's God's strategy for global transformation. Choose a few and go deep. Or one or two with a few. That was Jesus' approach to growth and leadership development. This is God in skin. He could have done it other ways. This is how he chose to do it. It's not surprising that the base authoritative structure of human civilization is two and a few. Mom, dad, kids. Or one or two and a few. Even Jesus with his disciples. Jesus with his father, whom he met with all night, and a few. But it's always a few with their leader. And their leader has in mind the challenge and the desire to encourage their followers to grow more intimate with Jesus, more dependent on Jesus, more in love with Jesus, more knowledgeable of Jesus. Choose a few and go deep. That's what he did. And it appears that this is Paul's method, method as well. Paul is Saul, right? He has this Damascus Road experience, becomes a Christian. What happens? He eventually gets hooked up with a guy named Barnabas. When you read in the book of Acts, it's Barnabas and Paul do this. Barnabas and Paul do this. Barnabas and Paul do this. And then at one point in the Acts, it's Paul and Barnabas do this. Paul and Barnabas do this. And then it's Paul does this. Now it's Paul and Timothy do this. Paul and Timothy do Do you see what, you, do you catch it? Do you see the choose a few and go deep? This seems to be the model of leadership development in Christ's kingdom. It's Jesus' model. It's God's way. So, in the next section, what do we see? Opposition. Foe and family miss Jesus. Two unbelieving responses to Jesus' ministry and message. One comes from close. One comes from far. They both come. They're both unbelieving responses. And sadly, Jesus says that if you carry these beliefs in your heart, you're going to miss Christ and miss potentially the kingdom. So there are two responses. His family say what? They say, like when he chose his 12 and then he came home and there were so many people around him that he and his disciples couldn't even eat. I mean, what would your, you know, if you're a mom, you want your kids to eat right and eat regularly and take care of themselves. And they're, you're, you're, you know, your, your son has attracted hundreds of people that are hanging out all over and in his house and he can't even eat. And what are you going to say? You're going to go, something's wrong with this picture. Maybe he's out of his mind. Now, I'm not saying that that's what Mary thought, but it does say here that Mary and her other, her sons, brothers of Jesus, they think he's lost his mind. Maybe temporarily, but we need to go seize him. Really? You're going to seize the second person of the Trinity because you don't understand what he's doing. You're going to leave Jesus as the Messiah because you don't understand the symbolism in his vocabulary when we understand, don't we? That passage I read, I get it. I understand why it's important to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus knew when he wrote that that I would read it millennia later and, and get it. Why do I get it? The Holy Spirit, which is inside me and in you if you know Christ. It's just, it's amazing. But these two unbelieving responses, he must be out of his mind, and then the scribes and Pharisees come up with this doozy. He is possessed by Satan. 
Well, why did they have to say that? They had to come up with an explanation for the people that were following Jesus to discredit his ability to control and command demons, right? So he must have the lead top authority of demons possessing him. That way, we can explain why every demon that has ever fallen at his feet obeys what he says. Because it's really Satan inside Jesus, and it's Satan commanding these demons to do whatever they're doing. Do you get it? But it's bad philosophy. It's bad logic. And Jesus just points it out. I love it. We get a little logic lesson here. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If what you say, scribes and Pharisees, is true, then these demons would not have power over all these people because Satan's kingdom would be crumbling all around. And clearly, it's not crumbling because Satan and demons are having some effect on all these people. So he basically calls them out on the basis of logic, I love it, and says, your logic is faulty. And then he says this, as long as you believe that the Holy Spirit is Satan... You are missing the kingdom. And really the whole business about the unpardonable sin, and I don't, this is just, forgive me. I haven't studied it, studied it, studied it. I've studied it some this week. My understanding is, and and I need to, you know, you got to put things on the bottom shelf for me to understand. My understanding is that the unpardonable sin ultimately is disbelief. As long as you hold to your disbelief, you are under condemnation and the potential of eternal condemnation. There is no salvation from not trusting the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation from that. That is the unpardonable sin. Make sense? There's no forgiveness for that one. Why? Because there's one door and there's one way to come into a restored relationship with Christ and it's Jesus and you have to trust who he says he is and what he's done for you. That's it. But keep in mind, these two oppositional statements, you're crazy and you must have a demon. I mean, some of us in this room came to Christ and our families thought we were crazy. And then they also thought, you must be following a cult leader. You're following someone who is spiritually possessed by something really bad. You need to stop going to that church. You need to definitely stop going to that small group every week with those crazy Christian people. You hear that? Opposition against the kingdom. It's always there. It comes from close, people you love and they love you, but they don't get it. And it comes from far, people that don't give a rip about you and would like to destroy you. It's there. Opposition. Foes and family miss Jesus. And then lastly, is this. A new family grows. Jesus is teaching at the end of this section. He has disciples. Where are they? In that little last section. Where are the disciples at the end of this passage? They are sitting at his feet. I can't help but think of Mary and Martha. Uh, You know, Mary busy, busy working. Martha at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says she's chosen the number one priority. Who are Jesus' disciples? They are the people that are sitting at Jesus' feet. They desire and make priority to be with him. And apparently in this text, Jesus' mother and his brothers come and they're trying to, they're seeking him. I think it's interesting that word uses that. They're seeking him. Are they really seeking him spiritually? Not at all. (laughs) They're seeking him because they're trying to seize him because he's out of his mind. 
But those that are sitting at Jesus' feet are seeking him from their hearts, desiring to be with him because they see who he is, want to become like him, and they know that the more time they can absorb with this guy, the more they seem to be their hearts being aligned and warmed with his heart. Those are his disciples. And Jesus says at the end of this text, what does he say? He says this. For whoever does the will of God, he or she is my brother and my sister and my mother. And at that very moment, his biological mother and and brothers were not pursuing the will of God. They were pursuing their own understanding, their own will. Does that make sense? So here's the deal. What's the application of all this? God's means for global transformation is people. It's us. And the way we become the disciples we want to be, it's choose a few and go deep. So if you come to church three times a month, every month you're faithful, you come, you know, and you come to church a lot, that's great. And the Holy Spirit maybe probably is the very one motivating you to do that. But are you going to become the disciple you long to be by doing that? Probably not. God's probably calling you to go deeper into community, to experience something more intense, yes, that requires more vulnerability, yes, but to put yourself in a group where there's a few people who are under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word, and you're learning together, you're doing life together, and you're walking with him together. The elders of this church desire that every member of this church have that opportunity, not just to worship together, although that's critically important, but also to experience deeper community with one another. And we have a variety of different ways that you can experience community here. And then we also desire for you to find ways to use your gifts, your unique gifts and abilities to serve the church and the world. Worship community and service. So here's the ask, and here's the application this morning. The application is that if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to to answer that draw in your spirit that says, I need a savior and a champion. This world is screwed up. I'm screwed up, and I can't fix it. And I need a champion. I need someone who can come and realign my heart. I need Jesus. And you need to come to this door to Jesus, and you need to enter in because he's begging you and calling you and drawing you in to to a restored life with him. For the rest of us that are already, we've been through that door, and we're going to have an opportunity to come through that door metaphorically again this morning as we come to this table. You may be at a place where you just need to say, I need the next level of deeper community. And if that's you, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to put action to that Maybe that that spirit-led desire, what am I going to ask you to do? There's two options. You can get out your phone. You don't have to do it now. Probably better if you didn't. But text the word GROW to our text number. You can do it after church. You can do it this week. Pray about this. But text the word GROW. What's going to happen? You're going to get a reply text. You tap the link. It's going to be a super short little questionnaire. Contact information, name, email, and then You don't even have to fill out anything else. You can just stop right there and hit submit. What's that going to do? That's going to let us know that you're interested in going deeper. And then you're going to get a personal call. I'll call everybody that texts. If I have to, I will. You get a personal call. And 
I want to find out what your heart's desire is. What's the spirit leading you to step into a deeper level? And then we will help you. We will help you with what we have now. Your desires will also help us know what we need to set up in the future so that we can do what? We can make disciple makers for the sake of the nations so that we can all be the disciples God calls us to be. You with me? Second option, I'm going to be at that table out there. I'm going to have an iPad. And we can go through that very same process together out there face to face. That's fine. And if you don't want to do the IT thing, you can just tell me and say, I want to go deeper. What's your name? Oh, yeah, here it is. I'll take it. We'll move from there. But all this is is your opportunity to act on the urging of your Holy Spirit that said, the Holy Spirit that's saying, go, go a step deeper. Does that make sense? All right. Let me pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that's taking us deeper. Thank you that we are your means. And thank you that you've given us a method to grow. And it's choose a few and go deep. Father, help us all to choose a few and go deep. There may be some in here, Father, who have done that. In fact, they're doing it so much, they're overworking it. They're in too many things. And you may need to give them the freedom to back out of one or two commitments because your Holy Spirit reprioritizes us. So, Father, now, would you work in our midst? Holy Spirit, lay on our hearts what we need to become the disciples that you're calling us to be and give us the courage to take steps in that way. And we thank you. Father, I thank you for the next thing we're, we have the privilege to do as a church, and that is to come to your table. Father, we come to your table as an act of faith, and we come to, to not literally, but figuratively eat your flesh and drink your blood and celebrate the fact that you are our redeemer, that you came and shed your blood and died in our place, taking upon yourself the punishment we as sinners deserve. And you rose again from the dead. And you told us, Father, you tell us even this morning we have the opportunity, if we have never done so, to come to you spiritually and to confess our sinfulness to you and receive Christ as the door, as our Savior, as our sacrificial lamb. And Father, through you, we receive eternal life and we get the down payment of the Holy Spirit, that portal of you brings the spirit into our hearts and lives and we begin to experience abundant life. So Father, we come to this table as an act of faith. We come to this table because we're needy and hungry. We come to this table because you desire to fill us with spiritual abundance. So Father, would you bless this time and would you work in our hearts? Lord, if there's somebody here who is Never come to Christ. May they stay in their seats, not come to this table, but receive Jesus, the Savior, right where they sit in their heart of hearts, silently. For those that know Christ, Father, move them to come. Meet us where we are. Feed us by your enabling grace. And Father, continue to make us the disciplers and the disciples we long to be. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.